Welcome back to Carlisle's Insights and Indicators podcast, where our head of global research, Jason Thomas, shares his insights and opinions based on our composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports. All of the data that we discussed today is accurate as of the recording, February 1st, 2023. Jason, thanks again for being here. Well, thanks again for having me. So Jason, the recession watch in the US and Europe has taken on what you've described as a quote, waiting for Godot feel with each month passing without clear signs of the anticipated contraction in overall activity. Based on our portfolio company data for January, do you believe we'll see disinflation without contraction in real activity? Well, certainly the probability of that has gone up. And I think that that is an outcome that market participants are increasingly betting on. As you saw in January, a surge in stock prices, surge in bond prices. So, so there is this expectation that real activity is going to continue to grow at, a, at reasonable rates. At the same time, that inflation comes down and allows the Fed to not only stop raising rates, but actually start cutting rates by the end of the year. You know, first, I, I would say Europe is probably the most surprising. When you think about the energy crisis, the natural gas supply shortages, the sort of impact it was expected to have on the household sector, you know, effectively making people poorer with a negative real income shock from you know, much higher energy prices, a lot of that didn't materialize. Much of it was because of public support. You had governments that were spending between 3 to 6% of GDP on subsidies to ensure that those very high wholesale energy prices did not flow through to the household sector or some businesses. Uh, it was also some good luck uh, with regard to milder weather than is typical. And also, I think some other good policies related to investments in things like floating LNG terminals that allowed Europe to access more American natural gas and alleviate some of the supply shortages that way. Of course, there was also switching to other fuels like coal, which you know is certainly attenuated the crisis, but but led to more carbon emissions. You know, on balance, probably sort of a negative outcome of this. But but at any rate, clearly Europe has been the biggest surprise relative to what someone might have expected three months ago. And our data are consistent with continued growth. And I think also a surprising strength of the household sector. If you look at our discretionary spending index, still showing, you know, again, pretty impressive sequential growth, which is to say, looking at January relative to the average over the past three months uh, at an annualized rate. Secondly, the United States, again, we, we, the growth is, is not particularly robust. Our, our estimate was that the economy is expanding at about a 1% annualized rate in the first quarter of 2023. Much of that is really attributable to what we call experiences spending. That's travel, tourism, live events. Overall, this index was up about 13% relative to January 2019. So, so not just up from the bottom of the pandemic, but actually very strong relative to what the norms were for hotel bookings, for air travel, for, again, uh, live event spending relative to, again, what was uh, normal in pre-pandemic period. So very strong there. Uh, you know, certainly some weakness elsewhere, but, but on the whole, again, an economy that continues to grow. Jason, let's stick in the U.S. for the moment, and let's dig into the impact of the Fed's rate hikes over the course of 2022. How has activity been impacted as we move into February 2023 based on those rate hikes? Sure. Well, I, I think that, first of all, and it's important to note, and, and I know we've mentioned it before, but, but it's worth emphasizing that the U.S. household sector, the cash flow of the U.S. household sector is largely insulated from Fed rate hikes because so much of household debt is fixed rate. 
you know, our whole mortgage market for the most part is 30 year fixed rate mortgages. So this means unlike elsewhere in the world, when central banks raise interest rates, it, it just does not have that immediate impact on depressing household cash flow by increasing, you know, it, what in many cases in the rest of the world is floating uh, mortgage interest rates. So thus far, though, it, of course, there has been a very sizable increase in mortgage rates. And that has led to not only a collapse in mortgage origination volumes, people, you know, a year ago, mortgage interest rates are only about 3.1%. They peaked over 7%. That, that's a, such a dramatic change in such a short period of time. There, there really wasn't a lot of home sales. There wasn't a lot of home buying. There certainly was no one that was looking to refinance their mortgage at significantly higher interest rates. So, so that had a big impact on activity. And then the second order effect was really a collapse in housing construction. Remarkably, housing construction only counts for about 5% of GDP, but it subtracted 1.5% from GDP in the fourth quarter. That means that, of course, housing constructions contracted by about a 30% annualized rate in the quarter. Our data based on housing material sales suggests that there was another 15% annualized decline in January. So, so again, this is a almost a sudden stop in construction activity. And this is really where most of the pain has been localized in the economy. So, you know, really a very dramatic fall in activity in this area, but but hasn't really spread over, certainly not to the household sector in terms of the, the spending for reasons we've discussed. We did see in January what perhaps is the first signs of spillovers to other parts, other spending categories. And a lot of that is really because when you look at the, the corporate sector, over the last three or four years, about two-thirds of the incremental borrowing in the speculative grade market has come in the form of floating rate loans. Some of that is hedged, so there's there's not uh, interest rate risk there. There's not the increase in uh, debt service costs, but of course, quite a lot of it is not. And so, when you look at a typical stylized borrower, what you've seen year over year is about a seventy percent increase in borrowing costs, debt service costs, going from something like you know six and a quarter percent to something like ten and a quarter or ten and a half percent. So, so a very large increase in debt service costs. And for these businesses, they may have to now, rather than growing, rather than using some of that cash for expansion, for hiring, they, they may actually now have more of their operating cash that, that is being consumed uh, by the debt service payments, which, which means that they have to cut back uh, on, on some of their business spending. We did see a very modest decline in overall business spending in January. And, and so, we'll, you know, we'll see. Uh, I think that if this interacts with the slowing economy, you of course, that means you have less operating cash and more of that is consumed by interest expense. So that is, again, a, a situation we'll be looking at, uh, but but it is perhaps, again, the first sign that these rate impacts have gone now in metastasizing in some sense, going from this really dramatic impact on mortgage and housing markets to, to now having some effect on depressing business spending and, and perhaps hiring as well. well. We'll see in the months ahead. Thank you, Jason. Heading over from the U.S. and Europe to Asia, how would you describe the state of the Chinese economy after the COVID outbreak we observed in December? Well, first, let, let's just, you know, December was a horrible month, certainly from a public health perspective. I mean, it was, was stunning to see the estimates about the number of people that were infected by COVID uh, during the month of December. You know, about 200 million estimated in really the first seven to 10 days of, of that outbreak and, and the, the uh, reopening of that economy, effectively the end of zero COVID. And, and the economic data were really just about as grim. We saw about a 35% decline in foot traffic, 
across our, our nationwide portfolio. We also saw you know, a, a very sizable decline in spending. Package and, and cargo throughput volumes fell by over 30%. So it was really, it, it, was, a, it was a collapse in, in economic activity. And, and of course, again, even, even worse and more concerning public health data. But I think as, as many of us have realized over the course of the pandemic, these epidemiological curves exhibit some degree of symmetry, of course. And, and so the, the more dramatic and the more exponential the onset of the epidemic in various uh, cities, the, the quicker it recedes. And in fact, that's really what we saw in January, where it, almost a shocking rebound in, in terms of the scale in, in many uh, cities, many areas in the economy, where you know, you're looking at our, our overall GDP data in terms of you know, aggregating a portfolio composite, measuring it and estimating the, the rate at which economic activity expanded, it was something like 5.5%. So, so really, you know, again, surprising. I thought that this would take much longer uh, for the economy to recover. If you look at foot traffic on a sequential basis relative to December, up about 20 percentage points. Um, and, and also, again, many of the uh, activity index is really back above where it was in November. So even back now growing relative to the December outbreak. Overall, I, I do think from what we understand about you know, the, the broader direction of policy, that the end of zero COVID is really just one piece of a much larger puzzle. And that is the effort among the government to really not only reinvigorate economic activity and make up for the growth shortfalls observed over the last two years, but also to, to really reinstill confidence in the economy, in financial markets, to get a lot of people who have viewed China skeptically and have been on the sidelines to engage. And, and part of that, of course, is dealing with, with some of the, the fallout in property markets. And we have seen not only an increase in liquidity, also some, some efforts to extend maturities and reduce some of the financial stress in property markets, but also a big uptick in transaction volumes. So if you look at our data on uh, the square meters of floor space sold, it's now up you know, about 20% on a sequential basis from the bottom of June 2022. So overall, again, I, I think that surprising to see how fast the economy has rebounded from a very grim December. And also, again, I, I think encouraging because of the, just this, this broader backdrop of a, uh, you know, just overall policy apparatus that is seeking to, again, reinvigorate growth and, and, and reestablish confidence. Jason, thank you so much for covering so much ground in 11 minutes, a month's worth of, of economic indicators in a very short amount of time. We'll close out today's discussion with what you'll be monitoring closely over February. What do you suggest that us investors monitor over the, the next month uh, before we hear from you again? Well, the thing that I'm going to be most focused on is looking at pricing behavior, pricing decisions, pricing expectations in the portfolio, both in terms of the management teams in our portfolio, but then also the prices that they have to pay and you know, some of the prices that they receive in, in downstream markets. The reason for this is because there's obviously been quite a lot of disinflation we've observed over the past several months. You know, the inflation rates have, have really halved, if not more, over that time. So that's great news. The question and the key risk today is whether inflation sort of gets stuck at three to three and a half, maybe four percent, rather than converging back down to the central bank's target with Fed and ECB of about 2% inflation. And one of the reasons to fear that inflation may get stuck at somewhat higher levels 
is because management teams today are really just much more aggressive about pushing on price. They've also invested quite a lot in data analytics related algorithms to allow them to price discriminate, to again, find where they can and cannot push more aggressively based on their book of business, whether it's customers, whether it's specific products or services. And I think that this is really something that is is not well appreciated. It's not very much discussed. You hear a lot of talk about the labor market, you know, some of the easing of supply chain pressures, all those other things. And of course, all that is very important. But there's also, again, just this question of management team psychology, pricing behavior that I think deserves far more scrutiny than, than it gets in you know, broader discussions. And it, it's what I will be focused on next month and, and certainly in, in the months ahead. Well, Jason, we look so forward to our discussion next month then, where we'll focus on your analysis of pricing behavior uh, over the, the month of February. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, thanks again for having me.